Okay, cool. So we are now um, in part two of a three-part series coming out of uh, Lent. We're not the most liturgical church, but we do observe Lent. Coming out of Easter drops us into sort of open or ordinary time. And we're in the middle of a series that I've chosen to call The Answers Right in Front of Us. And I said this last week, and I really mean this. If you catch the title, you can skip the sermon. Because that's really what I mean to say. The answers are right in front of us. We're dealing with the subject of relationships, marriage, and parenting. And this week, we're talking about marriage, which brings a certain level of dread to those of us who are married. (laughs) Remember, God's immediate response to his finished work in, in Genesis 2, the very first thing God says is it's not good for man to be alone. It's not good for humankind to be alone. It's not good for anyone to be alone. Those were God's very words preserved for us in in, in the book of Genesis. Loneliness is built into the operating system of the cosmos. It's by design, and it's designed to drive us somewhere. And I would suggest it's designed to drive us in the direction of first of ourselves, of others, and eventually back into the heart of God. Today we turn our attention to marriage. But listen, it's my goal to discuss marriage, taking into consideration that almost half our crowd is single. Something like 40% of the church is single. And so where do they fit in the conversation on marriage, right? If you buy Toyotas and you drive them all to 400,000 miles, you want everyone to drive Toyotas. If you're married and you're happy, you want all your single friends, you want to hook them all up. Actually, I'm told we can't say that word anymore. You want to, you want to set them all up. How's that? That's better. Not better, Brandon? That's a little better. You know, the English language is under construction. Y'all got this figured out? Yeah. I can't say what I used to say because it doesn't mean that anymore. But all of us want to recommend, and so here's, here's, the heaviness that is the backdrop to talking about marriage for me, it's this, and let me just say this to, as single people. Here's a confession. We too often communicate to the church in the following way. If you fall into the gap in the sidewalk between youth group and young marrieds, you're dysfunctional and we're really not sure where you fit. And so single people are not often figured in to the conversation of the community of faith. In fact, they're often left unaddressed, which is a statement all in its own. Do you hear what I'm saying? It's as if you're not completely a person. It's as if you're not fully seen or fully valued until you're married. Is this not resonating with anyone in the room this morning? Okay. If you are single, that was a married person, I'm pretty sure, who just whooped. Oh, was that? Okay, okay, I'm just checking. Came in the general direction of a very married person, so I'm not sure. Let's have some fun, right? But here's the thing. If you're single, forgive us for speaking this way. We need to wholesale recover the category of singleness. Why? Did you know that for centuries, if you really needed to hear from God, where did you run? You ran to the gathered, the cloistered, those who lived outside of the city, who lived a life of matrimony to God because they were the ones who heard from God. Did you realize that until very recently in human history, the privileged voice that spoke on behalf of God to mankind were single folk? Just saying. Singleness has always been a category honored and privileged by the church. Paul said, and you know these words and we read over them if you're married, he would have preferred that we all stay single. It would have been easier. And it it takes marriage to prove he's right. I'm just saying. (laughs) Wait for it, right? Jesus himself seems to have lived by the advice of Paul. So let me just say this. If you are single and you long to be married, I see you. Okay? If you are divorced and you never imagined that you would ever be single again, I see you. We see you. If you are one of those who has that rare and exquisite, beautiful gift of being single for life, we see you. 
We need to see you. Not only see you, we need to hear you. And here's my point. We need to relearn how we talk to one another in ways that don't stigmatize one category and lift the other up. Because let me tell you, some of the most broken people I know are working it out in marriage. Okay. I can get a little heavy there. I'm going to back up a little bit. Here's my point. If I'm doing my job today, whatever true things we say about marriage are going to be as true for single people as for married people. As for straight married people, as for gay married people, all of this should apply to all of us. Here's the thing. The way to a happy and fulfilled life is the same for us all, and here it is, laying down our lives for one another. That's not a married thing. That's not a single thing. It's not a straight thing. That's a human thing, okay? Preferring to see the sacred other in the other instead of seeking to expand and exploit and make myself more happy through the use of whatever you bring, this is the matrix introduced in Jesus Christ. Imitating Christ requires us to lay our lives down and move in the direction of self-sacrifice even unto death, and that's true for all of us. Now you get a little bit of a sense where we're going with marriage. This is not going to be fun. It's not going to be easy. It's not going to be super good news. This is what we all want. We all want to be in these kinds of relationships. I'm not saying marriage. I'm saying in a position where we find our life by laying it down. This is what human beings have always wanted. You know, Jesus isn't the, uh, uh, saying these things because he wants to curb our joy or make life difficult on us. Jesus is actually right. Laying your life down and living in a position of love towards the world around you is actually the best way to live. It actually makes sense. We, as human beings, spend our entire existence hunting and gathering and trying to figure out a way, a workable understanding as to why we ache in these lonely ways that drive us towards one another. All of our spiritual pursuits go in this direction. How do we answer this inner operating system flaw that says we need each other, we need to be in relationship, and this is what we're after? And as we suggested in the beginning of the series, the answers to these questions are right in front of us. It's tragic to die looking for the thing that was right in front of you all along. There's nothing quite so tragic as that. Maybe the simplest way of saying all of this in all three of these subjects is this. Contentment is possible right now. Right now, it's fully possible. Paul says it this way. Godliness with contentment is great gain, speaking to Timothy, young pastor in formation. Godliness and contentment is great gain. Do you believe this? in the arena of your relationships, in the world that is your marriage, and even in the space of parenting, without any extra aftermarket add-ons, do you believe you can be content right now? Think about that. Think about that. Nobody can do the work of contentment for you. And I'm just going to suggest this is your spiritual journey of your lifetime, figuring out how to be content. That's your journey. The subject of marriage frankly frightens me because I would so much rather talk about something that I'm a subject matter expert in, which I I don't know what that is, but it certainly isn't marriage. There's a level of dread related to this. Please know that I offer full disclaimer here. I am not an expert on any of this. We are 23 years in. Where are you? Right there. You're usually right here. 23 years into this. Is it better than I ever expected? Absolutely yes. But am I an expert? Absolutely no. I wake up every day trying to figure out what's the next right thing to do right? So I'm not coming at this in any sort of exhaustive way. Please know that what I'm going to say this morning isn't the whole picture. It's a few glimpses. I'm going to run a bucket down a well that are things that I know, things that I have learned, and it's not an exhaustive treatment of the subject matter. Everything that Allison and I have learned, we've learned the hard way, I think. 
We had no interwebs when we got married. I couldn't just call her on a cell phone that came years after we were married. Some of you guys don't even know what this is. There used to be little antennas, right? All the young people with their little fidget spinners are like, what even is that? I don't even know what he's talking about. If I'm honest, if I'm honest, I could sum up the wisdom that I brought into marriage in two pieces. Number one, show up a virgin. Number two, pray like mad that it works out. And spend your life trying to do some really great spiritual work so that maybe everything just kind of works out, right? These were the pieces of wisdom that I had going in. That's about it. I had some really bum assumptions going into marriage 23 years ago, but I think the worst of them all was this one, that adding her to my life was going to make me somehow happy. You get it? Aw, so sweet, right? I chose her, and I guess the rest was up to her to fulfill me and make me happy, Okay, so I'm going way back into the past. Guys, forgive me, 20, 23 years is a long time ago, right? But that was my working assumption. And like every dating fool, because every, dating, every person dating is a fool in this regard, like every dating fool, I thought that, that this was all it was going to take, that she was going to truly make me happy. For the first little bit, it worked. She did make me truly happy. And then I realized the shine was wearing off. It wasn't her fault. Listen to me. Being happy is my work. It's not her job to solve my need to be happy in marriage. We had an enormous journey ahead of us, and we didn't have a roadmap, just like every other couple in the history of ever. No one gets a head start on this. You follow me? Hear me clearly this morning, and notice I'm talking to single people as well as married folks. The most inconsiderate and perhaps violent thing you can do to another human being that you love is expect them to fulfill your happiness. There's no mic to drop. (laughs) The most inconsiderate thing you can do is rely on them to make you feel okay, to make you be okay. Nobody gets to do that for you. Contentment is your work. And I want to say this gently because this is heavy subject matter. If, listen, The deepest, if the deepest, most primal fear that you have deep down inside you is the fear of being alone, and that's what drives you into serial relationships and connections, possibly even into marriage, then the unseen foundation of the house of love that you plan to erect on top is not going to hold the weight of life. Because if all you can do is expect someone to do your work for you, trust me, it will crumble. It's going to come down. If being left unclaimed on the heap of unlovable toys is your greatest fear that you might be able to manage a negotiated arrangement by which this other person's responsibility is to make you feel okay, but that's not marriage. And that won't ever be self-sacrifice. That's not going to take you the distance. I'm sorry if I'm speaking a little. I need to stop channeling Ted Cruz and just just speak normally here. I'm getting a little Sheriff of Nottingham hissy. It's it's because it matters. It's because I, it's important to me. And I think it's, it's important to us. There are a lot of marriages that are negotiated arrangements. You follow me? Your job is to make me feel good. My job is to make you feel good. And that will last you about 10 years. Some people can hold their breath for four minutes. You can pretend for about a decade. And then it all just goes into smithereens. Eventually, you're going to need to do the work of accepting the reality. Now hear me. That you are loved By God, you are okay. You are the object of his unstoppable pursuit. You're going to need to square up with that truth. That can't be the work of a partner. 
Whole people make good lovers, not halflings. Whole people, single folk, what's the work at hand? The same work that we have at hand. Get yourself whole. Do the work of figuring out how to square up with the fact that God will never stop until he has you back. And it doesn't require anyone's else, anyone else's thumbs up for you to be okay. If you desire to be married, single people, but you haven't found the right person yet, know this. The most important work you will ever do to ensure a happy, lifelong relationship is what you need to be doing right now. There's no such thing as stuck. There's no such thing as on hold. It's not a thing. The clock is ticking. Now's when. You hear me? Boy, I wish I would have known this back then. I would have drugged so much less baggage into marriage. Now, some of you might, not, might just need to sit there for a while and kind of hold space for that. Maybe some of you are realizing what is the deep ache that's driving you from relationship to relationship to relationship, but it never follows through. It never delivers on the promise that you thought it was going to deliver because it never answers the ache in your soul. That's your work. And somebody maybe just needs to stop there and say, that's all I can handle. You have my permission to go on Facebook or whatever you need to do. But let's move a little deeper into this. You already know the provocative assumption that we're driving at, and it's this, that what you seek is already what you have in front of you. Now, for some married people in the room, you don't want to hear what I have to say next because we've bit the hook. You know the little cheese snack on the fish hook, right? We've bit the hook and thought that if I could just unload this relationship, I actually would be happy. If I just had that person, I'd be happy. We're going to disassemble that this morning. So it's going to get a little uncomfortable. Let's do that by talking about three myths. I want to just blow up three myths as it relates to marriage. Number one, you ready? You hanging on? There's a seatbelt under your seat. (laughs) Go ahead and find it. Don't buckle into the neighbors, right? Number one, here's here's a myth. That biblical marriage is about men leading and women submitting. All right, take a deep breath. This is going to get ugly. Don't even get me started on this subject, guys. I'm... mm. Here's what we know for sure. All such hierarchy is dissolved in Christ, okay? Nothing remains of those worn-out power structures rooted in physiology and binary gender assumptions and categories. Nothing remains after the work of Jesus. He blows it all up. He crosses all boundaries. He relates to women. He elevates them to the place of honor. Nothing remains, even in the work and writings of Paul, if you read him with great care, nothing remains of this hierarchy that says happy marriages when men lead and women follow. Let me tell you about entire seasons of my life where I was wise enough to follow my wife because I couldn't have found a clue. I couldn't have found a clue to save my life. I was too dug into my own shame. I had to follow. Wise men do. Nothing remains of those hierarchies in the New Testament. It amazes me how the words of Paul have been used by so many to enslave and imprison women when a proper read of Paul points out how he sets them all free, must I quote you his very words? Hang on with me. The apostle that spoke of a gospel that would require all such walls of hostility to fall in Ephesians 2. He's taken out of context to reinforce sexist structures that impoverish the human family. This is for free. I don't know if we should put this on the podcast, but I traveled the country coast to coast north, south, east, and west, and did the work for a denomination to figure out what was wrong with the leadership structure. Why do we not have enough leaders coming out the pipeline? You know what my answer was? We have not released our women. You cannot point me to a single church that has a deficit in leadership that does not also have people resourced and sitting right there ready to do it. Can you release them? That's the question. I'm not sure that was a very popular answer. 
Nobody wants to hear it, but it's true. Call it what you want. Baptize it with cool names that sound theological like complementarianism. If you must to feel better, but it is nothing but a broken structure that needs to fall in Jesus Christ. Separate was never equal. It doesn't work that way, guys. Healthy and balanced roles within marriage don't fit into neat little boxes organized along old, culturally specific, antiquated lines of gender expectation. Here's a question for you. I would actually like you to answer this in your head. Who's called to nurture children? Who's supposed to do the providing and who stays home? Who does the dishes? You check my fingernails. I do them often. Who is best at talking about their feelings? You guys know couples where you're like, wait, I don't, she can't like find the words and he's like all the way there. You get what I'm saying? You follow with me? Who's naturally more logical? Who's naturally more emotional? Who leads? Who follows? What is Paul's actual idea? Let's turn to scripture. I know you think I'm coming unhinged, but hear me out. I'm also the father of five daughters, so this matters. Ain't nobody telling me what they can't do. Sorry. (laughs) Ephesians 5, listen to this. In a single sentence, here's your theology of Paul. Ready? Submit one to another out of reverence for Christ. Now, in your scriptures, this comes under the heading that says, you know, family affairs or household affairs. Here's where he goes. Now, hang on with me. Submit to one another out of reverence for quiet for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. And how is that? Through self-sacrifice and laying down his life. Okay? Don't go all binary on me. Hang with me. As Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in some things. Nope, in everything it says. But not to stop there, he says, then says, husbands, love your wives just as, and you know, what, you know what we can do? Let's just take that out because that's, that's where he sinks us right there. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. How did he do it? He did it unto death all the way, follow through all the way to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with the water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. And in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies, with primal defense, as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Now, what flows naturally from reverence to Christ? Mutual submission. This is Paul's idea. What brilliant advice for a man who was single. Now, we might say, he really didn't know what he was talking about, but I think he does. Here's the big idea, mutual submission. Another way of saying this is, it's impossible to be reverent to Christ if it it doesn't work itself out in mutual submission, okay? The two things surface in each other. True reverence for Christ either surfaces in mutual submission or it's something less than real reverence. And here's my suggestion. We know lots of kinds of spirituality that are actually not founded in reverence for Christ. The real stuff shows up in dropping the walls of self-defense and being mutually submitted for a greater good. Is this too extreme? Do you remember the words of Jesus in Matthew 25 when there was a whole constituency of sheep who really thought they had it right and they did everything that they thought was right and Jesus says, you know what, all that stuff, I have no idea what that is, but that's not spirituality. It's possible to spend your life pursuing a kind of arrangement, a kind of negotiated arrangement where I have higher value and you have to listen to me and actually not be any closer to Christ than when you began. 
Wives are called to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord. What does this mean? What does it mean? Willingly, completely. But let's remember what kind of leader Jesus is. He's the one who stands at the door of his very creation and knocks and waits to be asked in. That's leadership. That's how Christ leads us. He woos us. I hate that word. I always spell it wrong. No, actually, I don't. That's a pretty easy word. He woos us. He patiently draws us. He moves us inch by inch. This is how Christ leads the church. This is the kind of love that women follow. Not structure, not hierarchies, not statements of value. But lest the husbands think that we're off the hook, how are we to love our wives? Just as Christ loved the church. And let me tell you, these words haunt me. The woman I married was not given to me to compliment me. She was given to me that I may lay down my life for her and in so doing, reenact and relive the very movement of God towards creation. That's what I'm called to do. She's not called to make me happy. She's not called to make me feel good. She's not called to alleviate my sense of guilt or whatever, shame or whatever. She is called that I may lay down my life for her the way Christ laid down his life for the church. And if that wasn't bad enough, Paul points out the reason. We do this because in doing this, we cover the shame and the imperfection, and we cover the flaws So when Paul says, he talks about a church that is radiant without stain, without wrinkle, that's obviously not the church that you and I know. What is he talking about? He's talking about the love of Christ so bathes the community that makes the future present now because of the intensity of this love. So how is it you say, my wife, she's this and she's that, and she can't do this, she can't do that. Yes, and what does Christ do for the church? He literally loves us into that kind of person through ongoing, unconditional love. This is what we're called to do for our wives. Easy job. Any single folks still burning to be married? (laughs) Mutual submission. This is the ideal in Paul. These are the rules of the new community formed in Christ. In case there remains any doubt in your mind, Christ submitted himself to human hands. This is what love does. He submits himself to human hands to a brutal, public, naked criminal's death. This is how we are to lay our lives down for one another, mutually for one another. So the first big myth, yeah, it's about me leading, about her following. Let me just tell you, that's not scriptural. Sorry. Second, second big myth as it relates to marriage, compatibility is the secret to a good marriage. Well, we're very compatible. We share all this in common, right? Dating fools, any dating fools popping up in your mind? Well, we have all this stuff in common. The world is just so amazing because, listen, Here's my major issue with casual dating, and I'm going to get on this for a minute, and then I'll get off it. It's built on the myth that compatibility is something that precedes good marriage. Follow me now. Compatibility is the hard-won result, the hard-earned result of two people who consistently and fiercely choose each other. Compatibility isn't a precursor. It's a byproduct, and I call it dogged determination. If you've ever been in a wedding ceremony that I do, the words dogged determination always come up because I think that's what makes it great. Dating is about strategically mediating and cleverly filtering, releasing slowly and cautiously the things that I want you to know about me so you stay. This is what dating is. It's a long and deliberate exploration of compatibility emotional, physical, etc. you fill in the blank, but it does not accommodate the full and complete unfolding of the self it was never designed to. 
You say, well, why is sex outside of marriage wrong? I'm just going to tell you it's just not super safe in the sense that it, won't, it will never accommodate the full unfolding of who you are. Guys, here's a secret. Spoiler alert. It takes decades to perfect sex. Don't let anyone tell you on Netflix it happens in 22 seconds. That's not how it works. It's designed to happen with laundry at the foot of the bed and the dog scratching at the door and the high potential that you're going to get a call from the school because somebody has some sniffles. That's where it's designed to function at its highest. Is that true, Laura? It's designed to be awkwardly interrupted. It's designed to take you to deeper and deeper levels of the self. And here's the reality. It cannot be explored without that guarantee that we are in this forever. The moment that vanishes, you don't fully release. You're not fully there. You're only releasing what you want to release to make them stay. It doesn't accommodate the full and complete unfolding of the self. I don't know if Allison and I were sexually compatible when we got married. 21, we were 21 years old. We walked that aisle. We were, we were as virgin as, as you could be. I don't know if we were sexually compatible then, but let me tell you, by God, we are now. <laughs> 23 years of choosing only her, this is what compatibility look like, looks like, okay? Millennials, you know I love you. You know I, I, I know the world is gonna be in good hands when it's in your hands. You're creative enough. You're, you're, you're full of life. I know you are, but I do not subscribe to your idea of casual sex because there's nothing about sex that's casual. There just isn't anything about it that's casual. You deserve the safety of an exclusive, lifelong relationship in which to unfold the real you, just like the rest of us. You deserve that, or you won't unfold. Sex doesn't unfold while dating. It's impossible. It wasn't designed to. I'll get off the subject. The most popular article written in the New Yorker magazine in 2016 is, a, is an article called Why You Married the Wrong Person. Has anybody read this? Nobody reads the New Yorker over here in Austin? It's written by a young man who wrote his first book on marriage at 23, which means he knew nothing of marriage, but it was a bestseller because he's on to some stuff. A little bit like Paul. He doesn't know anything, but he's writing about it. I don't really mean that. Paul's inspired. Elaine de Botton is not probably inspired in the same way, but his words are very inspiring. Let me, let me read some to you. Again, it's, it's entitled, Why You Married the Wrong Person. Now hear this. He says, we marry to make a nice feeling permanent. We imagine that marriage will help us to bottle the joy we felt when we thought of proposing, when the thought of proposing first came to us. Perhaps we were in Venice, on the lagoon, in a motorboat, with the evening sun throwing glitter across the sea, chatting about aspects of our soul that no one ever seems to have grasped before. With the prospect of dinner in a risotto place, I would say taco place, a little later. We married to make such sensations permanent, but failed to see, listen to this, that there was no solid connection between these feelings and the institution of marriage. Indeed, marriage tends decisively to move us onto another very different, more administrative plane. I love his use of language. Which perhaps unfolds in a suburban house with a long commute and maddening children who killed the very passion from which they emerged. The only ingredient is in common is the partner, and that might have been the wrong ingredient to bottle. Watch this. The good news is that it doesn't matter if we find we have married the wrong person. We mustn't abandon him or her. Only the founding romantic idea upon which the Western understanding of marriage has been based for 250 years, and here's what it is, that a perfect being exists who can meet all my needs and satisfy my every yearning. That's what must die. 
We need to swap the romantic view for a tragic and, and at points, comedic awareness that every human being will frustrate, anger, annoy, madden, and disappoint us. And we will, without any malice, do the same to them. But none of this is unusual or grounds for divorce or for leaving because choosing whom to commit ourselves to is merely a case of identifying which partner, which particular variety of suffering we would most like to sacrifice ourselves for. (laughs) If you're not laughing, you're not married. (laughs) Here's the tweet for the ages, right? Because it's all about tweets right now. Compatibility is an achievement of love. It must not be assumed to be its precondition. I'm not sure I've ever heard anything wiser said about marriage. The myth is, oh, they're married, they're happy, they're compatible. We didn't, you know, we, we're not really, listen, listen. You work hard enough, long enough, you stay in the game with, with enough tenacity and dogged determination and compatibility will be the result. Trust me. It's the achievement. It's the highest crowning achievement of your life. You line it up against boats and lake houses and careers and and appointments to high political places. None of it amounts to anything. None of it fulfills as much as the high achievement of compatibility with another human being. Third and final myth. Happy marriages are free of the kind of trials that we're facing. Other people are happy because they don't have to deal with what we're dealing with. Oh, boy. Good marriages are the ones that weather the turbulence, right? Not the ones that never face it. James writes to a young church at Jerusalem not long after Jesus ascends into heaven. The following words, and these highlight the the very process of maturity that everything in the kingdom is going to follow. It's going to follow the following process. And James will write in chapter 1, Consider it pure joy, he says, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you can ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. Count it all joy, whatever you face. No, but they're happy because they don't struggle. They don't struggle. They don't have the the disease. They don't have setback. They don't have the problems. Listen, there are some things that are actually emerged from the flame harder and more resilient than, than, than when they went in, right? And there is no other way in, in, in the kingdom. Just like drought makes plants resilient, you know, you plant plants in Texas and you hope that they shoot a root down deep enough to sustain the hot suns of central Texas during the summer. But if the root isn't 30 inches long, it's gonna die. It's not gonna be resilient. Just like drought makes plants resilient, heat tempers steel. Trials and tribulations either destroy a marriage or they make it tougher. So what does this mean? Let's assume God actually hears your prayer. Give me a great marriage, Lord. Give me a great relationship. Lord, fix what's wrong in my family. Help us understand each other. What's his answer going to be? Trials, struggles, tribulations, situations, disagreements, incompatibilities, families that clash, families that don't talk to each other, kids that have needs. I don't know if there's any other kind. Some have... (laughs) especially acute needs. This is going to be his answer. If, Christ is, if Christ's likeness is your aim, if it's your, if it's your goal, there's no other way. Listen, blow up the idea that anybody else has this in spades. There's no other way. And they look happy from the outside. But contentment is your work, and it's their work. So here's what I'm trying to say. If we mutually submit to one another, 
if we understand that compatibility is the wonderful result of many years of deciding to stay in the game, and as long as we understand that trials are the only way to grow, then all we have to do to have the marriage we've always dreamed of, dreamed of is wake up and answer the question in our soul by saying, the one I'm looking for is the one I have. What I need is what I have. The one I'm seeking is the one I have. It's the one I've got. Now, practically, what does this mean for us? Uh, there are ideas in your head you need to let go of. There are, there, there's a whole system that places blame for your discontentment that you need to release. You need to let that go. There are situations in your life where you have decided, I can't do it anymore. I can't push anymore. Now, listen, if you are in a violent marriage, I'm not talking to you. If you are in a situation where it's threatening your life to stay there, let's talk you and I, and let's talk about what, what you can do to get out of that situation. But if it's just a matter of a bunch of work, the diamond you're looking for comes after the intense pressure and heat of that very thing. So your answer is right in front of you. Here's the gospel for us today as we close. Everything we need to be happy and content in relationships, in marriage, everything we need is already within arm's reach. If your contentment isn't contingent on someone else, then you can decide to do that work right now. Right now, not later, now. You say, well, I, I don't meet people. Nobody, nobody seems to, listen, make yourself the most attractive single person in all of Austin. Make yourself unneedy and fully content. And you watch them beat the door down. People can't resist confidence in people who are whole, people who are on their way somewhere. I'm not trying to tell you how to get set up. I'm just telling you the work is yours to be done right now. Don't expect that to ever change. Don't expect there ever to be a season in your life where you get to not do that work. That's your work. That's my work. So if your prayer has been, Lord, make my marriage great, make my relationships great, or if your prayer has been, Lord, I want to be married so badly, I want to be happy and content, just know that all the work that needs to be done is what's in front of you right now. The answer to your prayer, it's not easy, but it's right in front of you. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Why does it matter that our answer is right here? Because we're seekers and we'll never stop. We'll never stop. We'll never, we'll never let up. We will always be on our way to the next thing to figure out how to feel okay. And the gospel would release that whole thing. Listen, the gospel isn't about teaching you how to behave like a Christian. The gospel isn't about teaching you how to have the right sexual ethic as it relates to your singleness or your married life. The gospel isn't about sin management, y'all. The gospel is about releasing the entire system that says you don't have what you need. We have what we need. Jesus said so. He came and he shaped it like this. And he said it looks like love and it feels eternal and you'll know it when you have it. The work is pushing back on the system that says something else is gonna be the answer to my ache. It's built in. It comes from design and it comes from God. And the only way to find it is to dig deep down inside and square up with that ache and understand that you've got everything you need. I'm done. Band, why don't you join me? Scott, do what you do with the lights. Scotty's got one big job. Watch him do it. He's the light guy. Trey, Trey goes to Greece and leaves Scotty in charge of the lights. I hope you hear me this morning. Sometimes I think I sound angry. It's not anger. I've actually been told that. You sound mean. I think it comes from, I think I, think I, know, I think I know us. And I think many of us, we can, we can hover in the message of Jesus and the social gospel and the justice and the homeless and the poor, and we can hover there for a lot of time, and, we can, and, and, and it's easy because we can manage a few degrees of separation. But there's no degrees of separation in your bed. 
There's no degrees of separation in your head. The gap between your little tube and the concrete wall that says, mind the gap if you're in London, that little gap for some of us is getting really hopelessly large and we don't know what to do about it. And what I want us to understand is that you close that now. That's your job to say, whatever ideal I had that I can't figure out how to do, I'm gonna just, I'm gonna start over. I'm gonna say, what I have is what I'm looking for and everything else changes. Now stand to your feet. Let's pray.